Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 35 of the Bible Reading Podcast. Today, we're continuing our discussion, why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? And in fact, we're going to keep going tomorrow as well. This is, as we said yesterday, it's one of the biggest questions people have about religion, about life, about Christianity, about the Bible. Why, if God is good and if God is all-powerful, why do bad things happen? And usually the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? But often what we really mean is, why is are bad things happening to me? Doesn't God love me? Isn't he hearing my prayers? Isn't he listening? Why me? Shouldn't other people be going through worse things than me? So sometimes we struggle the most when we're going through trials ourselves, and we're going to unpack that today. We're going to talk about uh, theodicy, or the, kind of a biblical answer for why suffering happens. And our reading passages for today are Genesis 36 and 37. We should have read that one yesterday, my bad. Job chapter 3, Mark chapter 7, and Romans chapter 7. I want to invite you to check out our website, BibleReadingPodcast.com. Show notes and all kind of good things are there. I also want to ask and encourage you to leave us a review or share the show on Facebook, Twitter, uh, Instagram, social media, or whatever. Um, Get the word out. And uh, let other people know that there is a daily Bible reading uh, podcast out there where we discuss what I think are some pretty fascinating questions. I'm not saying the answers are the greatest you're ever going to find. I hope they're good. I hope they're biblical. But I definitely think we have some great questions on the show to wrestle with. So in Genesis today, we get a very long list of Esau's relatives in chapter 36. Honestly, probably not the most inspiring chapter in the Bible, but we meet Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, a man of God who will become one of the more inspiring characters in the Bible. Job chapter 3 sees Job finally talking after a week of silence and suffering and scraping his boils with broken pottery shards, and he is as depressed and undone as we would expect him to be after Satan just absolutely put him through the ringer. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is going to blister the scribes and Pharisees for overvaluing and overemphasizing their silly and legalistic human traditions and undervaluing the actual commands and instructions of God. Romans chapter 7, which will be our final read of the day, Paul uses death in marriage to illustrate how those who have died with Christ are free from the Old Testament law. Now, we don't exactly have a focus passage today, but we will read Job chapter 3 first because, as I said, we're continuing our discussion from yesterday's big question. And for your information, like I said, it's such a big discussion that it looks like it might spill over into tomorrow as well. Maybe even the next day, we'll see, we will see. Let me say this from the beginning, before we read Job. For literally thousands of years, people have sought to disprove the possibility of an almighty and all-loving God by pointing to the presence and reality of suffering, especially the kind of suffering that, you know, most of us would say, well, that's just really not fair. That's unfair. Bear. A thorough reading of the Bible, even a surface reading really, is enough to disabuse us of one of the notions that good people will not suffer. 
read the Bible just a tiny bit, and you're going to see a lot of good people suffering. Today, like I said, we're going to meet Joseph, possessing the finest character among all of his brothers, and yet he will probably suffer the most out of all of them, and the vast majority of his suffering seems to us really, really unfair. In fact, Charles Spurgeon said of Joseph, Joseph was Jacob's best-loved and most-tried son, whom the Lord loves, he also chastens. John the Baptist and Job illustrate this issue very, very well, but there is an even more obvious illustration that the best people in the Bible sometimes suffer the most. The fact of the matter is, the central character of the Bible is, of course, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The most unfair thing that ever happened in history was his torture, crucifixion, and death on the cross bearing our sins. The central message of the Bible demonstrates beyond question that bad things will happen to the best of people. And therefore, really, none of us should be surprised when it happens to us. Good people's suffering does not disprove biblical truth. It really kind of demonstrates and confirms biblical truth. Honestly, if good people almost never suffered, then we might have a reason to doubt the reliability of the testimony of the Bible, or I guess in some way it's relatability, because good people suffer all throughout the Bible. And if good people never suffered apart from the Bible uh, in modern times or whatever, we might say, I wonder if the Bible's just not true in that area. Maybe things have changed. But they haven't. Good good people still suffer today. As we will see when we read Job chapter 3, that suffering that good people go through in the Bible, it's not minimal. It's not surface suffering. It is deep and relatable agony. Let's read Job chapter 3 verse 1. After this, Job began to speak and cursed the day he was born. He said, May the day I was born perish in the night that said a boy is conceived. If only that day had turned to darkness, may God above not care about it or light shine on it. May darkness and gloom reclaim it and a cloud settle over it. May what darkens the day terrify it. If only darkness had taken that night away, may it not appear among the days of the year or be listed in the calendar. Yes, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout be heard in it. Let those who curse days condemn it. Those who are ready to rouse Leviathan, may its morning stars grow dark, may it wait for daylight but have none, may it not see the breaking of dawn, for that night did not shut the doors of my mother's womb and hide sorrow from my eyes. Why was I not stillborn? Why didn't I die as I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, and why were the breasts there for me to nurse? Now, I would certainly be lying down in peace. I would be asleep. Then I would be at rest, with the kings and the counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruined cities for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden like a miscarried child, like infants who never see daylight? There the wicked cease to make trouble, and there the weary find rest. The captives are completely at rest. They do not hear a taskmaster's voice. Both small and great are there, and the slave is set free from his master. 
Why is light given to one burdened with grief, and life to those whose existence is bitter, who wait for death but it does not come, and search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with much joy and are glad when they reach the grave? Why is life given to a man whose path is hidden, whom God has hedged in? I sigh when food is put before me, and my groans pour out like water." For the thing I feared has overtaken me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I cannot relax or be calm. I have no rest, for turmoil has come. I gotta tell you, just listening to that is hard. Even though Job lived thousands of years ago, I imagine that many of us can relate to what Job is going through. He he sounds absolutely and utterly depressed, and crushed, and even suicidal. And honestly, why wouldn't he be? He's lost everything but his wife, and she keeps telling him to curse God and die. Listen, I get tired sometimes as a pastor of people talking about how shallow the Bible might be, people who've never really read it before, never really grappled with it. And I get more tired of pastors and TV preachers and best-selling Christian authors who throw out shallow, ridiculous, sunshine-pumping theology. At our church, Valley Baptist Church in Salinas, if you're in the Salinas-Monterey area, come visit us. But at our church a a few months ago, sometime in the middle of last year, we did a seven or eight weeks uh, study on depression on our, at our Wednesday nights. And you would be amazed at how many people in the Bible are like Job. And I'm not just talking about minor characters. I'm talking about major characters, Moses being one of them, who are, who, who go through these long extended stages of depression, even suicidal depression. And yet so often the church acts like, Hey, depression is no big deal. You just need to cheer up, man. And, and, uh, Trust God and you'll be happy. Well, I believe we should trust God. I believe there's incredible joy in that. But the Bible never minimizes suffering. It doesn't minimize what we call depression. It presents it as a real and a real thing that real saints of God go through. And some of the passages in the Bible, like what we just read, are absolutely gut-wrenching and they're real and they're genuine. And I defy people to tell me the Bible is shallow or doesn't deal with some of these things on a deep, real level. Because the fact of the matter is, the Bible shows us suffering as it really is, unvarnished without any sort of pretense or covering or whatever. What we hear when we hear, uh, what what we get when we read Job is realness, the, exactly what you would expect out of somebody who has gone through hell and is still sitting there scraping his boils uh, in, in just utter dismay. And so I don't want to, on this podcast, give you just platitudes like, oh, suffering, it's okay. We're going to be in heaven soon. There's truth to that. It will be okay. What we go through suffering-wise is is just a light and momentary thing in comparison with eternity. But when you're going through it, that's that's hard to see. So I don't want to pass over sufferings like some Christians have and just wave my hand in it and say, oh, it's going to be okay. Jesus loves you. That's true. It is going to be okay. And Jesus does love you. But I want to go deeper than that. 
And so in doing so, and, and look, this is a podcast. It's a short podcast. We try to keep it in the 30 minute range every day, 30 something minutes. It's not going to be the deepest thing. Three part series. It's not going to be the deepest. So don't look to this for your deepest answers on suffering, but we're going to go as deep as we can in the time that we have. And I, I want to look today at five biblical teachings on suffering. Teaching number one, suffering is universal and unavoidable. Jesus promises it in John 16, 33, as we talked about it yesterday. Peter says, don't be surprised when it comes, as if something strange was happening. In fact, he says, 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, Dear friends, don't be surprised when the fiery ordeal or the fiery trial comes among you to test you as if something unusual were happening to you. Don't be surprised. It's not unusual. Instead, verse 13, rejoice as you share in the sufferings of the Messiah so that you may also rejoice with great joy at the revelation of his glory. Now, that might seem like cheer up, be happy, but that's not who Peter was, and that's not where the letter of Peter is going. He is saying, don't be surprised. He is saying rejoice, but he's not minimizing the suffering. He's saying that the glory to come when Jesus returns is going to be so amazing and so bright, it's going to make our suffering look tiny. Teaching number two of the Bible, suffering in many ways is a good thing in the long run. I know that's hard to believe if you're going through the fire right now, but Philippians 3.10, Paul says, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. When we go through sufferings, we are made more Christ-like. Colossians 1.24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. In other words, Paul says, I'm rejoicing because I'm suffering for you because it is being used by God to build you up. And so suffering conforms us to Christ and it can build other people up. So it can, in many ways, be a good thing in the long run. I'm not saying it doesn't hurt in the short term. Charles Spurgeon says this, We should never have such fellowship with Jesus as we do if we had not such troubles as we have. You cannot see the stars in the daytime, but they tell us that if you go down into a well, you can. Sometimes God sinks wells of trouble and puts his servants into them, and then they see his starry promises. You might hunt in vain for glowworms by day, but they shall all be seen at night, and so shall the comfortable words and thoughts of the Holy Scripture. The fireflies shall flash best at night when the sunlight is gone, and so oftentimes the light of the promises of God is better seen in the night of trouble than in the day of outward prosperity. The black foils of trouble shall bring out the brighter jewel of divine grace. You cannot know Christ except by following in his footsteps. Poverty will reveal him who for our sakes became poor. Sickness will show him whose visage was more marred than any man's. Shame will teach you his shame, and suffering will reveal to you his suffering, and even death itself, which shall remove the foundation, shall give you conformity to his death, that you may have part in his resurrection. Amen and amen. Teaching number three about suffering, and three and four really go together, so hang in there. Suffering in a Christian can happen because of discipline. For instance, Hebrews twelve six through 8 says, 
For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. Endure suffering as discipline. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that a father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So sometimes the suffering we go through is a kind of discipline, but it is the same way a loving father or a loving mother disciplines her son. It is for our good in the long run. That doesn't explain every discipline, because every suffering that is, because teaching number four is suffering in a Christian can also happen because of God's favor. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you among God's churches, among about your endurance and faith and all the persecutions and afflictions you endure. It is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you will be counted worthy of God's kingdom for which you also are suffering. If you go through suffering for doing right, it is a clear evidence of God's righteous judgment that you are counted worthy of God's kingdom. Final teaching. Our suffering, as I mentioned earlier, will pale in comparison to the glory that is to come. Romans eight eighteen. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Now, that might not make a lot of sense to you, but it will, it will, it will, because we are eternal creatures. And because we're eternal creatures, it doesn't matter how old you are, you are still basically in the infancy of your existence. And if you remember anything about childhood, perhaps you will remember that not all of life makes sense when you are in infancy and when you are a child. And it begins to make more and more sense as you grow older. And so our sufferings will be. As we go older in into eternity, we will be able to look back and see our sufferings for what they are and what they were, which is doing more good than we realized going through them. Now, like I said, we're going to go through the passage, uh, th- this concept of suffering deeper tomorrow. But let me expound briefly on that last passage in Romans eight eighteen, which I think we're going to read in a couple of days. The Bible teaches that humans are eternal creatures, and that means that our 80 or so years of living on the earth are short, short time in light of eternity. It also means that the amount of time we are suffering in our existence will also be very short compared to eternity. When viewed through the lens of eternity, the idea of a good God allowing suffering to happen for a short time is not so shocking, especially when that suffering can have good effects. Now, I'm going to give a football illustration here, and I don't want to do it in a way that makes light of the suffering you're going through, but maybe just to help frame it in an easy-to-understand way. I am a football fan. Specifically, I'm a University of Alabama fan, and I've been a University of Alabama fan for 40-plus years. I've lived most of my life in Alabama, even though I'm in California now. I suffered through the Mike DuBose era, the Mike Shula era, the Dennis Franchoni years, as well as the Mike Price day. Paul Bear Bryant was a legendary coach at Alabama when I was a kid and even before I was born. But before he was at Alabama, back in the 1950s, he was at Texas A&M University, which was pretty mediocre football-wise before Paul Bear Bryant got there. He purposed to toughen those men up. So in 1954, he took a big group of players to a city, a small city, 
call a small hot city called Junction, Texas, and he sought to forge those guys into men. Most of the people who went to that camp quit before it was over. But their survivors became known as the Junction Boys, and they would go on to eventually lead Texas A&M football back into football relevance, and they themselves would become football legends. The suffering in Junction did not lead to immediate success. In fact, they stunk that year. But it did lead to long-term success, and most anybody that understands football understands that Coach Bryant wasn't being cruel to his players, but he was shaping their character and building them into a stronger football team. And yes, it hurt. And yes, it was awful. But it didn't last very long. Much like our suffering. When you're going through it, it feels like it's lasting a long time. And it may be. But when you're walking in eternity and looking back, maybe it won't appear as if it lasted quite so long. Now, I'm not at all here comparing God to a football coach. That would be very silly. And I don't, again, want to minimize your suffering. But I am pointing out that most astute football people can understand the concept of difficult periods of practice leading to a stronger, better football team with greater character and perseverance. If we can understand that, then perhaps we can understand a sliver of how God might use the suffering of our life for a similar uh, but much, much loftier and more important goal. Now, that doesn't explain all suffering, and I'm not going to be able to explain all suffering in this podcast. It's only a short podcast, and I'm only a guy. But maybe it gives us a little insight into it. Close with this, and then we're going to read some more Bible passages. Paul says this in Romans 5, 3 through 5. He says, We also rejoice in our afflictions because we know that affliction or suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Brothers and sisters, if you are going through trouble right now, affliction, suffering, whatever, cling to Christ. You may be like Job and John the Baptist and never know why, but do know this, that affliction is producing perseverance and endurance in you. That in turn is producing proven character in you. And that in turn is going to lead to a harvest of hope in your life. And that harvest of hope is not only going to be for you. It's going to be for other people. Cling to Christ as you go through suffering and trust him. He will make this right. Genesis chapter 36, verse 1. These are the family records of Esau, that is, Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanite women, Adah, daughter of Elon the Hethite, Oholibama, daughter of Anah and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bazameth, daughter of Ishmael and sister of Nabaleth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Bazameth bore Raoul, and Oholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were Esau's sons who were born to him in the land of Canaan. 
Esau took his wives, sons, daughters, and all the people of his household, as well as his herds, all his livestock, and all the property he had acquired in Canaan. He went to a land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too many for them to live together. And because of their herds, the land where they stayed could not support them. So Esau, that is Edom, lived in the mountains of Seir. These are the family records of Esau, father of the Edomites in the mountains of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, son of Esau's wife Adah, and Reuel, son of Esau's wife Basimath. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Getam, and Kenaz. Timnah, a concubine of Esau's son Eliphaz, bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Esau's wife Adah. These are Reuel's sons, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimath. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Aholibama, daughter of Anah and granddaughter of Zibion. She bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah to Edom. These are the chiefs among Esau's sons, the sons of Eliphaz, Esau's firstborn, chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, chief Korah, chief Gatam, and chief Amalek. These are the chiefs ascended from Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Adah. These are the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, chief Nehath, chief Zerah, chief Shammah, and chief Mitzah. These are the chiefs descended from Reuel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Basimeth. These are the sons of Esau's wife, Oholibama, chief Jeush, chief Jalam, and chief Korah. These are the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholibama, daughter of Enah. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. These are the sons of Seir the Horite, the inhabitants of the land. Lotan, Shobal, Zibian, Anah, Dishan, Izar, and Dishan. These are the chiefs among the Horites, the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Hori and Heman. Timnah was Lotan's sister. These are Shobal's sons. Alvan, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These are Zibian's sons, Ai and Anah. This was the Anah who found the hot springs in the wilderness while he was pasturing the donkeys of his father Zibian. These are the children of Anah. Deshan and Oholibama, daughter of Anah. These are Deshan's sons. Himdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These are Ezer's sons. Bilhan, Zaaven, and Ekan. These are Dishan's sons, Uz and Aran. These are the chiefs among the Horites. Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zilbian, Chief Anah, Chief Dashan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These are the chiefs among the Horites, clan by clan in the land of Seir. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, son of Beor, reigned in Edom. The name of his city was Dinhabah. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah, from Bozrah, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham, from the land of the Temanites, reigned in his place. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, reigned in his place. He defeated Midian in the field of Moab. The name of his city was Avith. 
When Hadad died, Samaya from Mazrekah reigned in his place. When Samla died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the Euphrates River reigned in his place. When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, reigned in his place. When Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. His city was Pau, and his wife's name was Mehedabal, daughter of Matrid, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of Esau's chiefs. I found this on the web that was pulling his wife's name was daughter of Mary, daughter of May. Check it out. You know what? I think I'm going to leave that in the podcast. <laughs> Something activated Siri on my iPad, and she was uh, telling me that. I hope it picked up. Verse 40. These are the names of Esau's chiefs according to their families and their localities by their names. Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jetheth, Chief Oholibama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinon, Chief Kenaz, Chief Teman, Chief Mipzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These are Edom's chiefs according to their settlements in the land they possessed. Esau was the father of the Edomites. And that was Genesis chapter 36. I was actually supposed to read it yesterday, and interestingly enough, had I read it yesterday, uh, the day the Chiefs won the Super Bowl in 2020, that would have been kind of funny because I'm not sure there's another book in the Bible, another chapter in the Bible, other than Genesis 36, where the word Chiefs is mentioned so much. Now, I'm not making a big spiritual deal out of that, just a bit of trivia there. Genesis chapter 37, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son to him, born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to the dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun, moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers had gone to the pa to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, Your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready, I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, What are you looking for? I am looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where, where they are pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. 
I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, Oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So come now, let's kill him and throw him into the one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams." When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. He was intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and throw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, the brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to the father and said, We found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. Mark chapter 7 verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of their elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why don't you or disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands? He answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also told them, You have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, if anyone tells his father or mother, 
whatever benefit you might have received from me as korban, that is an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him? It doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, and self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. He got up and departed from there to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, but he could not escape notice. Instead, immediately after hearing about him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she was asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, because it isn't right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she replied to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, Because of this reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. When she went back to her home, she found her child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. Again, leaving the region of Tyre, he went by way of Sidon to the Sea of Galilee through the region of the Decapolis. They brought to him a deaf man who had difficulty speaking and begged Jesus to lay his hand on him. So he took him away from the crowd in private, and after putting his fingers in the man's ears and spitting, he touched his tongue. Looking up to heaven, he sighed deeply and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak clearly. He ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more they proclaimed it. They were extremely astonished and said, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Romans chapter 7 verse 1. Since I am speaking to those who know the law, brothers and sisters, don't you know that the law rules over someone as long as he lives? For example, a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law regarding her the husband. So then, if she is married to another man while her husband is living, she will be called an adulteress, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law. Then, if she is married to another man, she is not an adulteress. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were put to death in relation to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another. You belong to him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions aroused through the law were working in us to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law since we've died to what held us, so that we may serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the old letter of the law. 
What should we say then? Is the law sin? Absolutely not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. For example, I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had said, do not covet, had not said, do not covet. And sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life again and I died. The commandment that was meant for life resulted in death for me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Therefore, did what is good become death to me? Absolutely not. On the contrary, sin, in order to be recognized as sin, was producing death in me through what it was good, so that through the commandment sin might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do. I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I'm no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no uh, ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do if I do what I do not want, I'm no longer the one that does it, but it's the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will escape me, rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. And that's a great place to close. Thanks indeed be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good day to you and Godspeed.